Glad to be here today. There's some. Uh, there's a big event going on today. The most important event, probably, in the world. It's that all across the world, God's people are gathered together to worship Him and enjoy Him. So. That is the most important thing today. That's, big. That's right, Jesus wins every year. He's already won, actually, and he finishes his victory. Uh, so as big of a football fan that many of us are, there's so much more reason to celebrate who God is and what he's done for us. And so because of that, that truth and that commitment, we are committed to his word. Um, and so we take time to go through God's word and hear from him and... Um, my name is Paul Buckley. I'm one of the pastors here. and I'm the, uh, the lead pastor, so it means that the bulk of the teaching and proclaiming of God's word is uh, done through me. It's my privilege to, many Sundays, bring you God's word, and also wonderful blessing to have such gifted uh, proclaimers of God's word on our pastoral team as well. So we're continuing in Exodus, and we're in chapter 3 today, so you can be turning there. Uh, and just as you're turning, um, t- let me tell you the story. There's a woman named Elizabeth Prentice. I don't know if you know who she is. She's uh, born in Maine, lived in New England a good part of her life, a uh, Christian author. She wrote many good books and poems, and one of, her, one of our favorites is the book called The Little Preacher. So if you could put that up. It tells the story of, of a shy boy uh, in Germany who was often berated by his stern father and teased by his schoolmates who amazingly became a very effective preacher and pastor, despite his weakness and meekness. It's a well-written and heartwarming story, um, and it really teaches that lesson. And by the way, it was actually very instrumental in my life because we read it as a family uh, when I was considering leaving my job as a research engineer to become a pastor. And I felt a lot like little Herman in the story um, because I just didn't feel like I could do it, and I didn't necessarily want to do it. <laughs> um, I wanted to serve, but I loved what I was doing. I was serving in leadership uh, in, in many ways, but God really used it in my life to clarify uh, my call and to teach me not to be reluctant or unsure. Thank you, Heidi, for the clock. That is a, a mercy to all of you, by the way. Um, I told Heidi earlier it was a very dangerous situation we were in with that clock falling. Certainly not that it not only that it could have hit somebody, but it, it could end up making us not get out of here till 1230. Uh, so, <laughs> no alarms, no. <laughs> but the clock helps. Um, anyhow, this story helped me a lot. And it's a story about this meek boy who was called of God. And that's really what our passage is about today. We're going to be in chapter 3 and then half of chapter 4. And we're going to learn this lesson from the life of Moses. We're going to see how God calls those who are weak and meek. And the call is not based on their competency, their self-confidence. It's based on who God is. And we're going to see this in this passage in a clear way. And I hope this will be helpful for all of us because the reality is Moses is a lot like you and me. He had a unique role, certainly, but he was a human being. And he was a man who struggled with his own weakness and meekness, even being overly meek, if you can be overly meek. And yet God taught him that God is more than enough for the weak and the meek. So let's pray, and we're going to go through. I'm going to do kind of how I did last week. I hope that helps. If we have time, uh, this is a longer passage. If we have time, we'll read it all the way through at the end, but I'm going to go through bit by bit, 
and kind of narrate and help us understand the storyline as we go. But let's pray, and we'll dig into the first section. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for these truths. Thank you for who you are. This is a story about you and you encountering a man who was weak and overly meek, a lot like us. And Lord, there's such good truth here for all of us. I pray you'd speak to us in power. Holy Spirit, be here with us. May we encounter you in your word this morning. We pray and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So chapter 3, I'll read verses 1 through 10. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So Moses, now in chapter 3, is tending a flock. We saw him earlier um, as a prince of Egypt. And now he's a simple and lowly shepherd. It's a big change from uh, what we saw earlier and what he expected. He's no chosen deliverer at this point. He's a simple shepherd, and yet God is working sovereignly in his life, preparing him humbling him, teaching him the lesson of humility, teaching him the lesson of his own need for God. That's really what meekness is. Meekness is a, a quality where you just recognize you need God, and you can't do it without his help. It doesn't mean you're weak, but it, it means you are dependent. And Moses was learning lessons of humility and meekness and being aware of his own weakness in that, and maybe even to a fault, because we see that in the story here. But he's learning a good bit about leading God's people. He's a shepherd. And a shepherd uh, is a challenging job. It takes patience and steady care, and it takes thick skin, especially to be a shepherd in the wilderness. And he's learning to be faithful in the little before God, that God would open a door, unbeknownst to him at the time, to be faithful in much. So God appears to Moses. He calls him to himself. He manifests himself in a flame. He does this throughout Exodus. He manifests his presence through flame. His, his presence is not the flame, but he makes himself known through the flame. And it's a flame that's an unusual flame because it needs no fuel. It doesn't have to burn the bush. It is there. It is self-sustaining, self-existent like God himself. And his presence brings holiness. It's the first use of the word, actually, in Scripture. The ground in which you are standing is holy. It's holy ground because 
God is there. So God bids Moses, and he calls him to himself, but, but he bids him to remove his shoes that he might enter in. We see in the scripture, we see here and elsewhere, of course, God is perfect and glorious. He's different. He's holy. That's what holy means. He's so glorious and so perfect in his goodness that he's different than us. He's set apart. He alone is the source of all goodness and glory and truth. He is holy. And yet he bids us to come. And we enter by his permission and his provision. So here in the story, it's his permission, it's his call, it's his provision saying, take off your shoes. And later on we're going to see in Exodus that provision is filled out. It requires the blood of animals to be sacrificed to atone for sin so that God may dwell in their midst. We're going to learn in Exodus. God wants to dwell with them. He invites his people in, and yet he's holy and good, and his people aren't. So there needs to be provision. And that is the blood of, of animals. And of course, that points forward to the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate gift of atonement, Christ himself, God in the flesh, shedding his blood, so that through faith in his blood, we may be welcomed into God's holy presence. To be his holy people, to be like him in his goodness and glory. Moses is invited in by God. God tells Moses that he's the God of his father. Isn't that interesting? It's not fathers, plural. I'm the God of your father. And then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So his fathers as well, but his father. He's the God who was there for his father as his father must have put his faith in God to somehow bring a deliverer, to somehow answer, to somehow sustain him and his family amidst their persecution, the persecution they received from the Egyptians. He's the God of his father. He was there, and we don't know all the connections that that would bring up from Moses, but we know Moses, when he was young, he was raised in his home. His mother was his wet nurse, so he was there, probably saw his father's faith in some way, knew about it. And so this is the God of his father. This is the God who is great and holy, but also is near, and was near and dear to his family, his own father. And of course, as well, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's, it's important to see that these two things go together in who our God is. He is both holy, and, and ultimately we cannot approach him without a sacrifice to cover our sins and, and our, our need. And yet he beckons us to come. He's a God who's near. He's the God who, who calls undeserving people, sinners and weak and meek people to himself. When he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if you read the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right, they're, they're not stellar people. They make major mistakes. They're often very foolish. And yet they put their trust in God, not themselves. And so they're welcomed in. This is who God is. So Moses is told all these things. And then we hear about God's uh, concern, his knowledge of what's going on with his people. He knows, he understands, he feels these things, he remembers his covenant. His people have cried out in prayer corporately, and so he's responding. And, and so he tells Moses all that he's going to do. He's going to bring them out of this place of, of persecution into a broad land, into a land of blessing. And he, he's going to do all these things for them. And then he says to Moses, come, I will send you to Pharaoh. That you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Imagine that moment. Moses is probably like, this is all fantastic. In the presence of God, 
glory. God cares about our people. This is the God of my father and my fathers. This is wonderful. What's God going to do? He's going to do all these things. And then, what? You want me? Wait, I was all good until that last sentence. I'm sending, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So Moses is now going to go on in this section to question God because he, I think, likes everything that's said except for the you part. And so verse 11, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, God says. I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So I will be with you, and you're going to come back to this very mountain. I'm going to work this out, Moses. I'm going to see this through, Moses. I'll be with you, and I'll see it through till you're back in this place. That's what God is saying to Moses. Now, it's interesting uh, how we have in this section, verse 11, but Moses said to God. And then we have God saying, but I. And I think that's a wonderful picture of life and of us. God is good and gracious. God works. God has been good to us. But Moses, but Paul, but, insert your name here, we struggle, we fail, we fall, we doubt. And the answer to that is not, but do better but get your act together. It is God saying, but I. But I, but God. That's God's answer, and it's throughout Scripture. This is a, a reality in Scripture. This is a reality in life. If it's up to us, but us, we're in trouble, but God. And so Ephesians 2, verse 1 it says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Thank God that it's God's character and promises that overrules our problems. And so God promises Moses, I will be with you and I'm going to bring you back here. I'm going to see it through to the end, Moses. The character of God, the promises of God is the, the ground of all of our confidence for all that he calls us to. His call on you is not grounded on your ability to accomplish the call. It's on his ability to give you power and grace and to keep you and to lead you. Your call to love your spouse depends on God. If you're going to truly love your spouse. Your call to love and lead your children. Your call to love your neighbor. Your call to share the reason for the hope with others. Your call to not fear in trial and temptation the answer to all these things is not you because it will end up in trouble. But you, no, you will fail. But God. 
who is always with you and mighty to save. Well, that's not enough for Moses. He continues in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the I Am, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. They will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go, unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand, and I will strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Moses is still having trouble with this whole idea, and God brings his answer once again. Now, in some ways, his question is a legitimate one. What, what should I say your name is? Because he's marching into the area where the Israelites live, and he's basically saying, I'm on a mission from God. And of course, if you ever hear someone say that, you're going to say, you should say, how do you know? What did God say? And so he's looking for an answer there. And also, we have to understand how names worked in the, in the Old Testament and in the ancient Near East. A name was not just what you called someone. It wasn't just something that sounded nice and was your name, your, you know, the, the thing that you used to get your attention. It actually spoke about who you were. And so when they are going to ask who is the name and Moses is anticipating that question, he's anticipating answering in some way that will help them see that, no, this is legitimate. He re I really have met with God. And so what, well, what is his name? Do you know this God? Tell me about him. What did he reveal to you about himself? That's kind of what's going on here. So God answers Moses. He tells him that his name, first he says, I am who I am. I am who I am. The I am has sent you is what he says to Moses. And we pronounce that Yahweh. Um, they actually were not totally sure how to pronounce it because over time, the, the Old Testament people of God so revered the name of God um, that they didn't want to say it, and they replaced it with the, in their translations with the word Lord. And that's part of why in, in our New Testament as well, it's called Lord, where it's Yahweh. And even in our Old Testament, in your translation, it might say capital L-O-R-D, all caps. That, well, that's Yahweh. That's I am uh, his name. And, and God gives that name not just as a way to call him, but to understand who he is. We've been going through this in our worldview class. He is the ultimate 
reason for all things. He's the ultimate, it is what it is. But it's a personal, it is what it is. I am who I am. Everything comes out of who I am. I am the self-existent one. I am the ultimate reality. I'm the eternally existent one. I'm the sovereign one over all things. I'm omnipotent. I'm powerful over all things. I am beyond time. I live from eternity to eternity. All those things are captured in that name, I am. Present tense. I keep on being. And also there is a connotation here that I will, I will be with you in my existence. So they go together. He's both eternal and glorious and sovereign and he's present. This is a mighty God who is a present God as well. He's no puny little Egyptian God. He is mighty. He's absolute. He's the only true God. That's who he is. And also, he's the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So that's what he also is to say. Those things go together. He's both mighty and near. And it's so important to understand for Moses, of course, and the people of Israel, who God is, and for us to understand who he is, that he is both powerful and omnipotent and compassionate and near. He's both those things, and that's really good news because if he was one without the other, we'd be in a lot of trouble. If he was compassionate and near without being powerful, he'd be not that different than our golden retriever um, who always loves to be with us, always wants to be in our presence, but really, if a burglar ever came to our house, we'd probably roll over and let the burglar scratch your belly. So she's near, she's nice, she's a good dog, but she's a golden retriever. Uh, and there's, I mean, it's nice to have her greet you every day, but when it comes down to fighting the burglars off or whatever, she's not the same. We used to have a Rottweiler, that's another story, years ago. Um, but the other side, right, if he's all power without compassion, that's scary. That's like what a tyrant is, right? Right? So like Kim Jong-un in North Korea, he's powerful. He rules with an iron fist. And, and if you're a Christian, by the way, in North Korea, you are sent to prison automatically and tortured. Every single professing, if you're publicly known as a Christian, you are in prison. That's what's going on with the brothers and sisters. This man's a tyrant. There's no compassion. There's only power. And yet our God is both of these married together in perfection, absolutely powerful and infinitely compassionate. We see it here as he talks with Moses. We see in the names he uses to describe himself. And of course we see it in Christ himself. Laying his life down for us. There's no greater compassion. No greater mercy. And yet in his work, and his lowering himself on the cross in a, in a really pathetic place in his passion and suffering for us and paying for our sins, the most powerful thing was accomplished for us. Victory over sin and death. And the authority as the God-man to institute the new creation, to see the gospel go forward to the nations, and when the work is done, to usher in new creation. Power and compassion together. God wants Moses to know this, and he wants Moses to be confident in him because he's going to Pharaoh. And he's t he tells Moses in this section, I'm going to send you in, and you're actually going to get resisted. Pharaoh's going to push back. And yet I'm going to stretch out my mighty hand. 
because I am the I am. I'm going to stretch out my hand, and I'm going to make the most powerful nation in the world and the most powerful monarch in the world bow to the only true God. And all the false gods of Egypt, these puny false gods, will also bow to me. I am a mighty God, but I'm acting in compassion for my people who are persecuted and oppressed. These things go together. And it's so good to know that and remember that. It's so good to know that because we are called to some awesome tasks as well that can be overwhelming. We're, we're not going to be called to do what Moses did, but each of us are called to, to build something, to be part of building God's church, the greatest building ever, actually, using the metaphor of a building. His church is to be built together. It's to be lives that come together, who, who come under the kingship of Jesus, who put their trust in God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, who learn to love one another and build community together, who live their lives in community and in, in, in many ways manifesting the love of Christ, and then are also a beacon to wherever they are. And this church is to be built throughout the world, throughout all time. And it's to shine for God. In the end, when Christ returns, the bride will be beautiful. And bring glory to him. And the nations will come. The church is to touch the nations, every tribe, every people. And I would submit every neighborhood, every area throughout the world is to have a witness of the life and truth of Christ. That's daunting. We can't do that. That's just big dreaming if it's left to us. But Jesus has said, the one who is the I am, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. And then he says later in Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. There it is again, to the end of the age. We're called to this, and we're called to this locally here as part of King of Grace, among many churches in the area as well. But each of us as members, if we're a member here, this is the church we're called to, and we're to do our work here in this local church. And I want us to, to, to hear who God is, and I don't want us to be like Moses in his weakness here saying, who am I? This won't work. That won't work. Let's be a people who pray and, and invest our lives in his work in and through this local church. I'm asking God that we continue to grow. I'm grateful for our growth. We started uh, doing baptisms twice a year because a friend of mine um, his church did that because simply they wanted to believe God to bring new believers into the church. And, uh, and so we started doing it. And, and, and God doesn't have to fulfill our program, but every scheduled baptism we've had, people getting baptized, uh, people coming to faith in Christ and wanting to be baptized uh, season after season. And so I want us to believe of God for these things and continue. I'm asking God, by the way, that we would double in size over the next five years. It's bold. And <laughs> um, I can't do it. Neither can you. But God can. He's able. And, and I don't want to just be big. I'm not interested in just being big. We don't need to be. We could be as small as possible. That's not the issue. But there's lives 
here. So we want to see our family members, our neighbors, our friends come to faith in Christ, come to understand their need for Jesus and how good he is, how wonderful and sweet forgiveness is, how powerful he is to help us in our need, how powerful he is to transform us, to use us to love others like him. So I'm asking God for that. And I, I pray uh, that we can all believe God for these sorts of things and to do wonders. I'm grateful. And I'm grateful for your faith. I'm grateful, by the way, for the faith demonstrated by those serving in short-term missions. Um, and, and there are many ways I'm, we act as a church that I'm really grateful. But I just to highlight that, I, thank you. I know there's a number who are serving this year. That's wonderful. I'm praying that God would stir uh, our young men as well to go. Um, I don't say that to make you feel guilty, but we have mostly young women. And that's great. Uh, that's Wonderful ladies, you're to be commended and encouraged, um, but may God raise up both young men and young women and, and have many of us serve. Anyhow, our God is able to do all these things. He's great. He's with us. Moses continues in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4. He's still having trouble. He's still doubting. He says in verse 1, Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, the hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground, and the water you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Moses is still having trouble believing God. And he starts out this, this sentence in verse 1, but behold, uh, a more contemporary translation might be, but look. You, you don't want to say, but look, to an authority figure. But God is patient with Moses. But behold, he doesn't believe. And so God says, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to give you these three signs. They're going to point to the fact that you've been authorized by me to do this work. And they're really cool signs. First, his staff can become a snake. Um, that's really freaky. Moses is, runs away. It's like a, probably a cobra. And then God says, pick it up the tail. Don't ever tell anybody to pick a snake up by the tail. You have to pick it up by the neck if you hope to not be bitten. Uh, I got bitten by a snake when I was a kid. Uh, you don't pick it up by the tail. And God says, pick it up by the tail. <laughs> He's saying, Moses, believe me. Pick it up by the tail, and it becomes a staff again. It's a cool sign, but it's not just about being cool. It's actually connected because the snake or the cobra is a symbol of Pharaoh himself put up the picture of the crown. Pharaoh would have worn a crown on his head that had a cobra on it. So that's Tutankhamun's burial mask right there. That's the sort of, the picture is the sort of crown that the Pharaoh would have worn. 
Now he was a little later, he had two things. Um, it's a vulture and a, and a cobra, but at the time, probably the time of the Exodus, it would have been only a cobra. So it's a picture of Pharaoh. And actually, Ra, that's the chief god, the sun god on the right, he has on his head a cobra as well. So it's a connection to Pharaoh and a connection to their chief god. And this god, god basically is saying, okay, they're going to wear the cobra thinking they're tough and powerful. You're going to be able to make a cobra. And then you're going to be able to grab it by the tail. So it's a demonstration not only of the authority but the, of, of Moses as a, being commissioned by God, but the authority of God over Pharaoh and Ra himself. Next is this sign of the leper's hand. Leprosy in that day was a terrible disease. They hadn't discovered what was going on. And so if you got leprosy, you, your life was over as you knew it. It was a terrible scourge for anybody. And there was great fear of diseases. And so this is a sign, not only to show God's authority, but God is the Lord over all disease, over all sickness, over life and death. And it's no problem for God to do something where Moses put his hand in. and It would have been shocking, right, to pull that hand out. It's pictured like it's leprosy. It looks like just cancerous skin, awful, and puts it back in and it's brand new. It's demonstrating God's lordship over the things that the, the Israelites and the Egyptians would have feared. And then finally, the water from the Nile. The Nile was, was considered uh, like a deity. The god Hapi was the god of the Nile that blessed Egypt as they understood it. Um, and God is demonstrating his lordship over Hapi, over the Nile, over this source that they depended on. He can turn it to blood. So these are signs of point to God's authority that he is the I am over all these things. And by the way, this is exactly what's going on in the ministry of Jesus later on. Jesus' miracles are signs of his authority. And as you read through the Gospels, we trust actually in the next year or so we'll be in Matthew, um, you'll see these miracles. He shows his lordship over disease, demons, destitution, hunger, living creatures, and then, of course, sin and death itself. It's a sign that he is God, and we are to put our faith in him. God calls us to trust the one who is Lord over all these things. To not be afraid of what others are afraid of, but to trust God. And God loves to answer prayers. God does do miracles, but even if he chooses to allow us to go through tragedy, he's still Lord over these things. He's still good. He's still with us. Well, Moses continues. Moses says to the Lord in verse 10 of chapter 4, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I... The I am. Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. Moses is again struggling. Not a good public speaker. He's afraid. Maybe he stutters. Maybe he's just like most of us. I don't know anybody that just steps into public speaking like, I'm, I love this. I'm a good public speaker. Uh, you, even if you have a gift for it, it doesn't start that way. And yet God answers, who makes a mouth? Who gives these abilities? 
who gave you your mouth and the ability to do speech anyhow? Is it not I? I'm the one who gives and takes. I'm in control of all these things. And so when I say speak, can you trust me to give you the ability to speak? Now Moses is call, called to do this in a profound way before Pharaoh. But we're all called to do it in different ways and smaller ways. And we all struggle with the same thing, fear of speaking to others. I do it as part of my call, my vocation. I still struggle with nervousness and fear at times. It never goes away. So don't think that, yeah, I'll speak when God deals with my fear issue. Instead, think, God's called me to speak. And he gave me my mouth, and he gave me the truths. And it can, might just be your story of how God's worked in your life, how he's helped you, how he's met you, your own story in your own words. And we're called to speak that and share that with others. We're to give others, right? We're to tell them the reason for the hope that is in us, right? Is that for all believers? Yes. We need to be speaking to those in our lives, our friends, our family members, the people that we care for, and tell them this is the reason. And so we trust the God who gave us our mouths and gives us the power. And we don't make it about ourselves. And it may come out goofy. I've had, believe me, I've had recent things where I say things, and it comes out goofy. And it's fearful to come up here and speak, actually, every Sunday. And those who have been here around long enough know me well enough, and my message is there are times when I've misspoken. But that's not going to keep us from doing what we're called to do, and all of us as well as individuals. So share the good news and trust God, the one who gave you speech, to use you. You don't have to worry about yourself. And by the way, uh, I'd encourage those who have prophetic sort of gifts on Sundays, please come up and talk to the host pastor. Don't say, well, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not very eloquent. Others do this better than me. I know if I don't go up, Pastor Paul will get up and give something, you know. I pray probably every Sunday, Lord, please give someone else a word to share so I don't have to go up because I'm getting up later. Um, and so let, let whoever's up here, Pastor Toby, let him be the person that God uses to help you sort through it. But use your, use your mouth. If God were to give you a verse or something to share that's, that's faithful to Scripture, encouraging to others, if you've been through the prophecy class, and I would love, if you haven't, I'd love to take you through that material. Um, step up, use your gift. Hear what God is teaching here for you in that specific way. Well, Moses still doesn't get it, and we continue. Says he, he can't speak, even though God is the one who's made the mouth. And it, his retort to God, his answer to God is, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. This is the sixth objection. And actually, the, the translation could also be, Please, Lord, anyone but me. Please, Lord, anyone but me. Now, you might think that lightning's going to strike here at this point because God has been amazingly patient, and it's God, right? It's the Holy One. I mean, you're, you're, in, you're, you're seeing God in this close-up and personal way, and you don't want to be questioning God. And you would think, okay, number six, you're done, Moses, uh, but God is so patient. He's angry with Moses because Moses is persisting in bold unbelief and selfishness. 
He's allowed perhaps his failures because he took it all in his own hands. Remember when he was younger? He had a sense of his call. His name is Moses. He's a prince of Egypt. And so he took it into his own hands. He murdered someone, right? Remember that? Hid the body, got exposed. He ran, scared, decided that he's never going to do this you know, deliver of Israel thing again. And maybe that whole thing affected him and he's been in the desert and just he's, he's lost everything, lost all confidence. But, but the answer to that is to put your confidence in God. And God's amazingly patient in this section. God, he's angry, but then he says, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. And then this, behold, he is coming out to meet you. He's already on his way. God provides Aaron for Moses. Because Moses is like, please send someone else. I can't do it. And so God says, well, I've provided your brother. Matter of fact, I already told him to come. He's already on his way. I knew you were going to have this objection. I knew you were going to say this. And so I prearranged in my sovereignty for your brother to come and meet you and to be there for you and to be your mouthpiece. You'll still be the leader, he'll be your mouthpiece. And I'll use him. He's your brother. He'll be glad to see you, and he'll speak for you. Amazing. Because he could have just said, okay, Moses, you're done. But he's, in his mercy and grace, has prearranged for Moses to come, to speak for him, for Aaron to come, to speak for him. It's wonderful. And I hope that it encourages us that even in our weakness, God is acting with us and for us. He's patient. He's kind. He's gracious. I won't have time to read this through, um, but let me encourage you to go home today and read it all in one setting, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, through chapter 4, verse 17. I think uh, having gone through it together, I trust it will help you. And um, as we prepare to transition, um, the band comes up and transition to communion, let me just encourage you to take a moment right now to say, Lord, is there some place in my life where I am resistant to your call? Is there something I'm fearful about in line with Toby's prophetic word? Please help me. Please forgive me. Help me to believe you and obey you. Maybe there's a step of obedience you need to take. Maybe there, you know specifically. I trust you know, God in his sovereignty prearranges these things. Maybe there's a specific step you're aware of. And I just encourage you, if, if you know that's the Lord, it's biblical, and you've been like Moses, I encourage you to give it to the Lord. So let's take a minute together to just be before the Lord, and then Toby will come up and transition us.